Welcome to Excess Returns, where we focus on what works over the long term in the markets. Join us as we talk about the strategies and tactics that can help you become a better long-term investor. Justin Carboneau and Jack Forehand are principals at Validia Capital Management. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Validia Capital. No information on this podcast should be construed as investment advice. Securities discussed in the podcast may be holdings of clients of Validia Capital. The ETF industry is dominated by the big players. They control most of the assets and they have some clear advantages over the smaller companies within the industry in terms of their ability to launch and grow products. We know this firsthand since we launched our own ETF in 2014, not exactly the best timing for a systematic value strategy, by the way, and that eventually didn't work out for us. But just because big firms control most of the assets, that doesn't mean they offer the most innovative products. Some of the most interesting products we have seen come from smaller shops who are not afraid to challenge the big players. We have been fortunate to interview many of them in the three years since we launched our podcast, and so we thought it would be interesting to put together into a compilation some of the smaller firms that are helping to launch new products that give all of us more of a robust series of choices within the ETF space. Here are some of the more interesting ETF companies we have featured on Excess Returns. But before we start, one important caveat, like everything we do on Excess Returns, nothing we discuss here should be considered investment advice. Our goal is not to recommend any specific ETFs, but rather to highlight some of the more innovative work and investment strategies being done by the guests we've had a chance to talk to. With that out of the way, here are some of the more interesting ETF concepts we have seen on the podcast. To set the stage for our discussion, we thought it would be useful to understand the ETF space in general and what the landscape looks like for smaller firms trying to break in. So we reached out to our good friend, Wes Gray. Wes knows more about the ETF space than probably anyone we know. Not only has he built a very successful company himself in Alpha Architect, but he also founded ETF Architect, which is a firm that helps other firms launch their own ETFs and has launched many of the ETFs we will discuss in this episode. We asked Wes why the ETF space has been dominated by the big players. Hey, Wes, thanks for jumping on with us today. Hey, Justin, thanks for having me here again. Yeah, so we're doing this special episode on uh, ETFs and the ETFs sort of landscape. And, you know, we, we thought it would be great to have you on. I mean, you've, you've created Alpha Architect, which is a successful but smaller uh, ETF company. You've been doing that for a number of years and just grinding it out and developing great investment strategies. And then through your new firm, ETF Architect, you know, you're sort of becoming one of the more, I guess, premium white label ETF providers out there launching new ETFs and helping get other uh, strategies to market through the ETF wrapper. So, you know, we thought it'd be great just to sort of set the stage here with some of your observations um, about what you're seeing, but also where things might go sort of in the future. Um, and, and to start, we, we wanted to ask you, you know, I think and most investors that are in the ETF market know this, that most of the assets are dominated by, you know, a small number of larger players. Maybe it's starting to change here, um, but, you know, it's still a lot of the assets are sort of concentrated. So, so to start, we want just to ask you, I mean, why do you, why do you think that is and, and what advantages do the big players have over smaller companies? Yeah, so I think the reason that that exists is simple. There's massive barriers to entry, as you guys know, to get into asset management. And it, it basically boils down to two areas where the costs are. One is operational, and then two is distribution. On the operational front, that's, that's basically what the vision for ETF Architect is, is, hey, how do we lower barrier to entry on accessing the marketplace from like an operational, legal, compliance perspective? But then the other challenge is obviously distribution. And you know, if you have a lot of resources, you could hire a lot of uh, wholesalers, you could pay a lot of kickbacks to the banks. You could, you know, buy a lot of steak dinners for 
you know, financial advisors, all that sort of fun stuff. And that just comes with economies of scale. Um, and so, yeah, just by nature of the business, it's a, a high fixed cost industry. So I, th I think that's why historically, and, and even today, it's, it's just more challenging for smaller firms. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I think like one of the things that I see is like people like Mab and you and others are pretty forward leaning, much more forward leaning with content and trying to get out there and educate. I mean, a lot of these larger firms are doing that to a large extent too. I mean, they have good educational parts of their site, but they're not maybe as forward leading or they have been at with, with the podcasting, with content and stuff like that. So, I mean, is, is, would you, would you say that's maybe one advantage that sort of, sort of some of these smaller players have? Uh, of course. So, you know, being from the military, I got an acronym for everything. And, and so what we always say is boutiques have to be fast. And what does fast stand for? Well, they got to be flat, right? They can't have huge bureaucracies where it takes them 10 months to talk about a tweet. Um, they have to be authentic, you know, BlackRock handle. If you've ever read it on Twitter, it's not exactly the most authentic or inspiring, uh, piece of work, right? Larry Fink rides his Learjet and then talks about climate change. So you got to be authentic. You got to hold yourself out there of, of actually living and breathing what your message is. Um, and then finally S stands for social savvy, same thing, right? They know how to actually leverage social media to give them scale in marketing distribution on the cheap. And then finally, the last thing, the T in fast is a thought leader and a thought leader is just not saying I'm a thought leader. It's actually doing stuff that's innovative, different, unique. And you're bringing a different idea to the marketplace. And on our platform alone, you know, we kind of specialize in operators like this, but you just some quick examples. You got like Perth Tull, she invented freedom weighted, you know, investing. You got a guy, Ray Micheletti. He, he literally is the PhD who invented relative sentiment indicators. And then another example might be like Kai Wu, right? Like he's on the forefront of bringing machine learning into trying to understand how to quantify intangible value. So. These, these folks are just fast. They're, you know, they're, they're flat, they're authentic, they're social savvy, and they're thought leaders. And I think that works. And I don't think Vanguard and iShares and others are going to be able to, that's not their edge, uh, clearly. Yeah, well, that fast acronyms. Let me ask you, one of the things that you guys have done, I think a really good job of is lowering the fees of your funds over time. Like as you've grown and gathered more assets, you know, you know, that fees are important to the investor and the returns that they get. And, you know, investors are attracted to the less they pay, you know, the better it is for them. Um, so I'm just curious on, do you think that that free, I mean, the free, free comp compression is always going to be there. Um, but do you see that sort of starting to weigh, is it starting to level off? I mean, have fees gotten to kind of where they are and aren't really going that much lower for not the passive stuff. I'm talking more active boutique-ish type stuff. What do you think? So, well, let me talk specifically to Alpha Architect, right? Because we, we're kind of unique in this uh, calculus. So, so our deliverable, our value proposition, what we call affordable alpha, right? So we are specifically trying to figure out how to kind of vanguardize weird boutique non-scalable investment strategies. So for us, you know, we're going to always be about lowering cost if we can support it financially and robustly. Uh, that's our mantra. But we're also a little bit weird in a sense that I do believe that in general, the fee wars are probably over for the most part within asset management. So I, I think the prices, just knowing the cost of production, which we also know a lot about, and we are lowering a little bit, by the way, um, it's just 
if you're a small boutique and it's unrealistic that you're ever going to expect to raise more than say two, three, four hundred million dollars, you have to charge a fee to be able to deliver your service or, or you're not going to do that profitably. So I, I think, I think the fee wars have kind of reached their macro equilibrium. They can always come down over time as cost production comes down, distribution costs come down, but I think they're pretty settled. I think the real war in fee is going to be on the advisor side because Vanguard, as a lot of people are aware, has specifically, you know, moved their targets from instead of being on asset managers, they're now moved towards advisors. So I think that's where the real battles are going to be had in the future. And I think we're pretty close to status quo at this point. When you, uh, last question here, when you, when you look out over the next 10 years, um, do you think the industry will be more or less dominated by larger firms? And I guess what other things do you see sort of coming on the horizon, changing in the ETF landscape? I, yeah, I don't think that'll change just because of the cost production of the good that we provide, which is investment advisory services. And so for any sort of product that has massive scale, like an index fund where I could put a trillion dollars in it and not move anything or do anything, that's obviously going to go to like a low cost provider, like a Vanguard of the world. But then there are obviously are a lot of things that actually require research, R&D, and investment in time and effort, i.e. The, the realm of boutiques. So everything that Vanguard can't do efficiently, like they're not going to be able to run concentrated factor funds with deep research you know, that they've tried and they haven't been successful. They're just too, they're the anti-fast, right? So I think that you're always going to have boutiques that are going to be able to succeed in their lane where they specialize and have unique expertise. And of course, in, in the big commodity products with massive scale, the winner in those markets should be the low cost producer, like the Walmart of that, of that business, which, you know, that's Vanguard, that's iShares, that's kind of State Street. So I don't, I don't see that changing that much, to be frank. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, it's going to be fun and exciting to see the, you know, the new ETFs and strategies that get launched on ETF Architect. And thank you for joining us and uh, helping our audience get the lay of land in the ETF landscape and business. You got it. Here's the ETFs. The Freedom 100 Emerging Markets ETF, FRDM. One of the coolest stories of success in the ETF space we have seen is from Perth Toll and the Freedom 100 Emerging Markets ETF. When we first met Perth at an investing conference, she had only the concept and was looking for a way to turn it into an ETF. She did that in 2018 with two and a half million in assets, and now her ETF has over 250 million in it, and it's been a huge success. This is a testament to Perth's determination and also her concept of excluding the countries with the least amount of freedom from the emerging market universe. We asked Perth about this idea when we had her on the podcast. Yeah, so traditionally emerging markets indexes out there are typically very heavily weighted in some of these autocracies um, or countries that are, don't have a lot of protections for personal and economic freedoms. So, um, and that's, that's because of the country classifications and market capitalization weighting, which is the standard weighting method. Um, so with that type of weighting, you get a higher, uh, allocation to China. So you have about 38% to China right now. Um, MSCI, um, I believe is either completed or almost in completion of their, um, additional uh, A shares, um, inclusions. So which, which quadruple their A shares from 5% to 20% uh, as a target in the index. And uh, that brought their China allocation up to like 43% by August 2020. Now that percent has come down since then because of relative performance, but um, currently it's about 
in that index. So that's one country alone. China has 38% of most emerging markets indexes. In addition, you have allocations to Russia, to Saudi Arabia, which was added in 2018. So, and those are not small allocations. Those are all top 10. So you have, you know, more than 40%, approaching 50% in some of these highly unfree markets with very questionable um, human rights practices. Um, and then it's just, you know, not a lot of freedom to innovate. So uh, that's kind of the problem we're looking to solve. And we do that by freedom weighting. So freedom weighting is where you give the freer countries a higher weight, less free countries, lower weights. Um, and the, the worst offenders are naturally excluded as a result of the freedom weighting. And so we have actually no allocation to China, Russia, Saudi Arabia, Egypt, Turkey, or any of these very unfree markets. And that's just a natural result of the freedom weighting. The IMGP DBI Managed Future Strategy ETF, DBMF. 2022 has been a great year for managed future strategies. With stocks and bonds declining together, investors have begun to understand the value of diversifying strategies like managed futures that have different return profiles than the standard stock and bond allocation. One of the biggest beneficiaries of this has been the IMGP DBI Managed Futures Strategy ETF. We had Andrew Beer, who is the founder of Dynamic Beta, which manages the fund, on the podcast, and he explained what managed futures are and how they can benefit investors. Managed futures is a strategy that's been around forever, and you know, we've been around for 50 years or something. And I think we are still trying to come up with a single sentence that resonates with everybody. So, so what what you basically what is basically is it's a computer driven strategy where people are looking for trends, and 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 they're looking at recent history. So it's almost like technical analysis, where you're looking at the you know interest rates and how they've been moving. Are they likely to keep moving up? Um, and so some people call it momentum, some people call it trend. Uh, but, but the basic idea is that, you know, we humans drive a lot of things that go on in the markets. We're very emotional. We don't respond to things quickly. We can overreact, et cetera. And these cold, rational machines can, can weather a year like this. Um, now the return profile of managed futures is, I think it is, it, it, it is absolutely, utterly obvious as an asset allocation in a broader portfolio. And the reason being that, you know, it has zero correlation to stocks and bonds over time, although they will go up or down, but it's hit the trifecta. It made a lot of money during the dot-com crisis. It made a lot of money during the GFC and it's up 35% this year before fees. So, so there, there is no other strategy that I'm aware of from a diversification perspective where you say, I'm starting with 60, 40, and I want to peel off 10 and put it into something. I think this should be everyone's first port of call. The Acquires Fund, ticker symbol ZIG. It is possible that after a very long winter, value investors like us may finally be having our day in the sun. We owe much of what we know about value to Tobias Carlisle, who holds a record for the most appearances on excess returns. Toby is the manager of the Acquires Fund, which takes a unique approach to value. We asked him about the Acquires Multiple, which forms the foundation of the strategy when he joined us earlier this year. The strategy itself is very, very simple. It looks for these companies that are cheap on an acquirer's multiple basis. So the acquirer's multiple, for people who don't know, is the metric itself is basically operating income. But you, you might think of the that would either be EBIT or EBITDA are, are well-known examples of that. So that's earnings before interest and tax, earnings before interest, tax, depreciation and amortization, which is basically the accounting version of cash flow that goes into a... That, that management gets that they then decide what they, how they direct that. And they can direct that in various different ways. They can use it to pay down debt. They can use it uh, in CapEx. They can use it to buy other companies. They can use it to buy back stock. 
And then the way that you determine whether it is cheap or expensive is you compare it to the enterprise value. So the enterprise value is the market capitalization. So if you think about your house, you own your house and you pay um, you pay $100,000 for your house, but you have a $80,000 mortgage on your house. So the market capitalization of your house is $20,000. And it doesn't reflect the mortgage that you have that is an amount that is a real uh, liability that you have to pay off over time. And so uh, the, the enterprise value captures that, that debt number and it captures other things that are debt-like, quasi-debt. So preference shares have a requirement that often that they have some sort of dividend that is pref- preferred to the, to the common. So it has to be paid out before the common can receive its dividend. There might be minority interest. So somebody else might own a piece of the the house and that needs to be reflected. In some circumstances, you might find that the house has a safe inside it and there's some cash in that safe. And so the, the actual cost of your house is much, much lower than it appears on the outside because you find the safe and it's got $100,000 in it. So the real cost of your house is zero because you could take that cash and, and pay off the house. And that's essentially what the enterprise value is. We're looking for companies that have got more cash than debt or or they, they don't have any of these hidden parts. And then we compare the two together so we can get an apples to apples comparison of all of the companies in the market. Now that sounds like a very simple, it is a very simple metric compared to the full analysis that other investors do, but it's also a very powerful one because it does contain a lot of information in it. Um, and when we test that idea relative to other simple metrics like price to earnings or price to book or free cash flow to enterprise value, we find that it performs has performed the best over the data set that we have, which is 1963 to sort of to date. Um, but there are long periods of underperformance and there are multiple periods through the, the long series of data that we have where we've had these well-known manias, well-known bull markets, and there are about six or seven through the whole data set um, where value does really badly. We're being we're, we're, we're sort of looking for these flows isn't helpful at all. So it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very long-term strategy um, and it's money that you shouldn't need in the next sort of three to five years that you can put into a strategy like this so that um, you can give these companies enough time to, for the market to sort of forget about the reasons why they're undervalued in the first place and to start valuing them again on their fundamentals, which Benjamin Graham would have said you know, in the short term, the market is a voting machine, but in the long term, it's a weighing machine. And so that's what we're trying to buy these things when the market's voting against them and have them eventually weighed on their, on, on their merits. And that's value investing. The Sparkline Intangible Value ETF, ITAN. One of the things many value investors have recognized in recent years is that companies we are valuing are very different than the companies of the past. The rise of intangible assets like intellectual property and brand value have led many to challenge whether traditional value investing metrics like the price to book are still relevant today. Recognizing that fact is one thing, but incorporating it into an investment strategy can be a much more challenging step. Kai Wu at Sparkline Capital is one investor who has tackled this problem head on. He uses machine learning to estimate the value of intangible assets and then incorporates those values into his valuation metrics. Kai explained this in more detail when he came on the podcast. So I I know your audience is very familiar with uh, value investing and quantitative value investing. The idea of buying low, selling high against some measure of fundamental value. So I'm also a value investor. I started off my career working for Jeremy Grantham and GMO. So my kind of time has been spent trying to answer one question, which is 
how has the definition of value changed over the past century? Or you go back to the 1930s when value was first pioneered by Ben Graham and the economy was industrial. The biggest companies were railroads and steel mills. And you fast forward to today, and now we have Apple, we have um, Google, Microsoft, totally different world, totally different drivers of value today. Um, I like this quote by Warren Buffett. Um, it's on my website as well. Uh, the four largest companies today by market value do not need any net tangible assets. They are not like ATP, GM, or ExxonMobil, requiring lots of capital to produce earnings. We have become an asset-led economy. So what is Buffett saying? He's saying that you know the moats that companies in 2022 um, use in order to gain a competitive advantage and to dr drive earnings are different from those 100 years ago. Um, it's not physical capital. It's instead intangible capital. So at Sparkline, we have four pillars of intangibles we use um, to kind of categorize this amorphous world um, of various drivers of value. And these four pillars are brand, human capital, network effects, and intellectual property. What we found in our research is that intangible sets, if you look at the percentage of, say, the corporate balance sheet in the U.S., or as the percentage of the stock market market cap, has risen from basically zero in 1980 to basically 50% to 80% today. So a huge rise in, in the balance sheet angle. You look top down in national accounts, what you see is that you know more GDP was invested in intangible as opposed to tangible capital in 1990, and that gap has widened ever since. So um, intangible investment has become a bigger and bigger share of investment today. So it's pretty clear that the economy has transitioned and it's becoming increasingly intangible over time. What's the problem? You alluded to it already in your question, which is the accounting, right? Which is accounting is the foundation upon which all valuation work is being built on. And it's not kept pace with um, all the innovation and transformation we've seen in society. Um, there's a book I like a lot um, I've talked about. It's um, called the, uh, the End of Accounting by an NYU professor, Ruth Lev and Fung Gru. And one of the really cool exhibits in their um, uh, book is where they show the uh, cross-sectional regression of book value and earnings as ability to explain market cap. And you can see the R squaring was about 90% in 1950, and it declines down to less than 50% today. Right. So what that is saying is that you know, as the economy is transitioning to be more and more intangible, traditional accounting metrics, such as book value and earnings, are declining in their explanatory power. So what is the problem with accounting? I think there are kind of two categories of issues um, that, that are experienced. The first is inconsistent capitalization rules. And so what I mean by that is that the way that accounting frameworks deal with intangible as opposed to tangible investment are different. Um, if I put a, you know, a bunch of $100 million, let's say, in building a manufacturing plant or a factory, that gets capitalized. It goes on the balance sheet of the company and then gets depreciated over time. Whereas $100 million spent on, say, a COVID vaccine, you know, R&D um, development, ends up becoming a expense. So we're going to take it out of day income that year, and there's no balance sheet item, which is, of course, ridiculous because you have firms whose only job is to do R&D or to build brand equity, and those things don't appear in their balance sheets, right? Coca-Cola spent $100 billion on one advertising over its, the course of its, its lifetime, and zero is on its balance sheet as a brand equity item. And so the second category of, of problems is just pure omissions, right? So we saw that with brand and IP, it's more an issue about how the accounting investment is being treated different than, than physical investment. But on the other two, so human capital network effects, there's basically not, no mention. The only thing we see is that from the human capital front, there is, like I mentioned, of a number of headcount. 
a company has, which of course is not very useful because it doesn't make any distinction as to the quality of these employees or what they even do. And then on the on the, the network effect side, I mean, you have all these companies for whom like they're the primary store of value. If you like list, right? All your values in your driver network, that's not an on balance sheet asset. On um, so you know how we might think about that. I'm just looking at accounting statements. The Freedom Day Dividend ETF, ticker symbol MBOX. Another metric many value investors like to look at is dividend yield. Many investors like to search for stocks that have the absolute highest dividend yields. But research shows that for deep value investing, there may be better metrics to use. It can also be argued that the best use of dividends isn't as a value metric at all, but instead as a way to find high quality companies. With the Freedom Day Dividend ETF, Ryan Kruger takes that approach and looks for high quality stocks that are growing their dividends. In our interview, we tackled each of these two ideas with Ryan. First, we asked him about his view on dividends. High yielding anything, dividends just being one of them, is more often than not a red flag to me. I've just been around too many enticing to what do I owe this great act of generosity is my first question. And in dividends in particular, you pull the curtain back just even a little bit and wonder, well, if free cash flow is plummeting, debt is being issued, there's no top line growth, but there's this big, fat, juicy dividend. And, and by the way, I'm talking about some of the largest holdings of some of the most popular dividend ETFs and funds. Um, that's more than a problem to me. And so that's number one, the red flags. Um, but I think what sneaks up on people and, and the beauty of dividend growth is you're not taking a step back and merely getting a lower yield and being safer. But as you might've seen that simple Yogi Berra math that I like to talk about, um, you know, arguably one of the sneakiest, best Hall of Fame resumes ever. And everybody talks about his great quotes and know the guy, but very few people know what he batted, which was 285. And if you take a 2% dividend growing at 8%, eight years later, that's a 5% yield on cost which is already better than the 4% high yielding dividend that may not be raised at all. So that's simple math. And the, and the dividend growers that I want to wait for um, are far in excess even of 8% a yield, but that's just some simple conservative math. Um, that to me, that dividend growth model, and, and really the, 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 the math that I think most important to people that are calculating their mailbox money and all they need is a back of an envelope to do it, no fancy algorithms is what is dividend yield and when it is growing over time, boy, that number can get up there in a hurry. And all of a sudden, if you've got a five, 10, 15% yield on cost, good luck trying to rip that security out of somebody's hands during market volatility. That's a whole different question for that stakeholder, in my opinion. So I think it is a behavior issue as well. Ryan also explained how he looks at the quality part. You could have a table full of different metrics to choose from. And a lot of them would, would make a lot of sense and be good answers of very traditional quality. Um, I don't think a lot of them are secrets, though there are, therefore the uncrowded trader in me wonders, where's the opportunity? So I think the way I would answer that question and to make this more accessible, and I would argue a more challenging question for the smartest uh, quants out there is I'll sit down at a dinner table with my own kids and ask them what business will still be doing the same business 10 years from now. That's a very short list. It's a fun game, by the way, to talk to kids about capitalism, but I think professional portfolio managers have a very difficult time and it's very subjective, but consistency 
would be where I'd start with that quality because I don't think it's an easy question to answer. And I think that shortens the list considerably on where to start. Um, I know that's not a hardcore answer, but I think because of the way you frame the question, I think that's where some of the biggest opportunities lie. I think there's very few companies that have consistency over time, including their dividend policy. The Disciplined Fund ETF, ticker symbol DSCF. Another interesting use of ETFs is to utilize them to build an overall asset allocation using or within the ETF wrapper. Because of the tax-efficient nature of the ETF structure, the negative tax consequences of rebalancing can often be eliminated, leading to better after-tax returns for investors. Discipline Fund's founder, Colin Roach, came up with this very interesting way to do that using a concept he calls counter-cyclical rebalancing. He talked about this in detail in our interview with him. The way I like to think of it is that um, basically what happens in a typical index fund is you have, for instance, let's say like a 60-40 stock bond fund. And what happens in that fund is that over time, the stocks naturally outperform the bonds. And so you get 60-40 and it grows into 70-30. And at some point over the time horizon there, if you want to maintain the same risk profile, because typically stocks will expose you to more risk, the more they're exposing or the, the larger they become a, a part of your portfolio, you have to rebalance that. And so, you know, rebalancing is a very standard part of portfolio management. But the, the kicker is that oftentimes when we rebalance that 70-30 back to 60-40, we're not always measuring it the same way. We're not always rebalancing it back to the same level of risk, importantly. So for instance, in a period like 2008, a 60-40 is way different than it is in 2010. And so what I actually do is I take the benchmark and I rebalance it counter-cyclically. So if your benchmark is 60-40, and let's say that your portfolio grows to 65-35, well, our benchmark is essentially more dynamic in both directions. And so I'll actually take the portfolio at times back to 55-45, for instance. And so again, what I'm trying to do there is not necessarily time the market or try to generate better, um, you know, alpha or better returns necessarily. What I'm really trying to do is I'm trying to buffer the, the investor from the potential that they'll overreact. So reducing the risk profile at certain times, especially during like big macroeconomic booms where I'm reducing the amount of equity risk because we're basically quantifying the macroeconomic risks as being slightly elevated. And so rebalancing a little bit more dynamically, it's rebalancing in a very tax efficient way, the way that we achieve it. So um, the, the way that the, the strategy is designed, though, is to be a behavioral target where we're keeping people, um, you know, in line with their risk profile and hope, hopefully performing better because they behave better ultimately. One of the things you often hear about in the ETF space is that all the good ideas are taken and there is nothing new anyone can come up with. Simplify ETFs has certainly proven that wrong, though. They have launched over 20 ETFs and the majority of them are ideas that hadn't been done before. Many of the ideas take advantage of the concept of convexity. Simplify's Harley Bassman explained the concept and how investors can benefit from it when he appeared on our podcast. We use the word convexity because it has X's and a V and it sounds like fun and then we have all the Greek letters. Just ignore that nonsense, man. We, we just say that to mark up the trade to you. Well, convexity is very simple. If you have called a bet, although we don't like using gambling terms on Wall Street, but you have a bet that can be off one point if things go up and lose one point if they go down, equal, like up and down 10 basis points or up and down 5%, whatever it might be. If you make a point or lose a point or an equal change, that's zero convexity. 
If you make two and lose one, positive convexity. Lose three, make two, negative convexity. That's it. Nothing more, nothing less. It's just, is your return linear or nonlinear? Yeah, and really, I kind of made the light bulb go off in my head about the benefits of convexity is this idea that if you have a convex product that moves against your core portfolio, and if you're willing to rebalance that convex product when it you know has its convex return while your portfolio is going down, you can increase the return of your portfolio even if that product has an expected return well below your portfolio. So the idea of like rebalancing during those events like can actually increase your return. I mean, I, I, you can tell me if I have that right, but that was really when the light bulb went, out, light bulb went off in my head. You have stumbled into the truth uh, miraculously. So in chronically offer where we have, you, you buy the, the insurance policy, right? Market drops down and there's 2% you've invested in the, the puts, right? The, 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 the insurance policy. All of a sudden it is worth 5%. What you can do is sell that thing off, make two of those five points and rebottle new puts, take the three points and buy more stock. And that is very clever because basically, if you, if you absorb and bounce back up, you instantaneously reinvest at the lows and capture that. Whereas most people will have their, you know, equity exposure and then have, you know, they'll go to some you know, hedge fund that offers an insurance product. You know who I'm talking about. And the problem that is they might win, but your money's stuck there for two months till you can get it out. And you have to pay taxes on that gain. It's very inefficient to do that. So we've basically taken, like I said, we haven't invented the wheel here. We've taken good ideas and improved them. That's all. We, 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 we put them into an ETF format that you can trade on the exchange. Um, uh, point and click, really easy. And, and the strategies are relatively simple. It's just putting in professional products into something that's just so unique that it seems new, but really it's, 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 it's not. It's hard to know where the ETF industry is going in the future, but the one thing we can say with a high level of certainty is that the rise of ETFs has been a significant positive for investors. It has resulted in lower fees, it has improved tax efficiency, and it's resulted in the launch of many innovative strategies that wouldn't be possible in other vehicles. Whatever the future holds, it is likely that the smaller firms will play an increasingly important role in it, and that is likely good for all of us. Thank you for listening.